The code sets up high standards of performance for motion picture producers. It states the considerations which good taste and community value make necessary in this universal form of entertainment. Respect for law. Respect for every religion. Respect for every race. And respect for every nation. That was William H. Hayes, president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, describing the Motion Picture Production Code, also known as the Hayes Code. In 1933, the ACLU took on the American film industry over the issue of their repressive censorship code. The Hayes Code was designed to protect the American people from depictions of interracial romance, homosexuality, drug use, and bad guys who get away scot-free. It wasn't until the 1950s that the codes were struck down by the Supreme Court in a case, Burston v. New York, brought by the ACLU. In 2005, the ACLU decided to turn the tables and use film to make their own case on critical civil rights issues facing the country. To do this, they approached Hollywood director Jeremy Kagan. Although he was surprised by the request, Kagan was an obvious choice. His success with films like The Chosen, Heroes, The Trial of the Chicago Eight, and Crown Heights had established him in Hollywood as a go-to guy for projects with social justice themes. The result of their collaboration is a series of ten short films called The Freedom Files that address such issues as the Patriot Act, free speech, voting rights, the drug wars, racial profiling, LGBTQ rights, and much, much more. Here's an audio excerpt from the Freedom Files trailer. filming a peaceful protest and I get deprived of my freedom. The right of free speech is enshrined in the very First Amendment. The one officer said, sir, you'll have to go inside into the free speech zone. That's a contradiction in terms. The whole country is a free speech zone. So we were let out in handcuffs. Ironically, as America Beautiful was playing on the left. Oh, that's just stupid. I turned around to run and that's when I got shot. My life is not going to be the same. It's more important now that we continue to stand up for our rights. If we don't, we're going to lose them. Since then, Jeremy has continued his work not only as a director, writer, and producer, but also as a tenured professor of film at USC, where he founded the USC Changemaking Media Lab. In our conversations over the next two episodes, we'll hear about how his continuing work in film, television, and teaching have melded together in a role Jeremy describes as that of an artivist. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, the imagination business. So in a strange way, you and I are in in the same business. I sometimes describe myself as being in the imagination business. The, The stories, of course, are the most critical manifestations of the human imagination. Humans would not have survived without putting those two things together as a way to pass on information and uh, think about the future. You know, it's interesting as you said that because a, a number of cultural theorists have said the one thing that you know, distinguishes us is specifically stories. The ability to recreate the past and create a future, that imagination quality distinguishes us as a species. 
Well, in those stories, for good or for ill, as I think you probably know better than most people that I talk to, skip over a lot of the defenses that people have about receiving information that they don't particularly agree with or maybe pushes a button for them. Yeah, I was just reading an article that was by a sociologist and communications theorist making the point, and this is something I've been studying and running through my Changemaking the Media Lab, is the idea that when you get involved in a story and involved with characters, when that happens, the possibility of your resistance to the mm-hmm. message becomes diminished because you're on the journey of that character. Miguel Sabido, I don't know if you know who he, he yes, is. Entertainment and Education. You got it. And this is the work that I've been really committed to for, I don't know, the last 30 years. I even got to spend time with him in Mexico City, was that if you created three characters in a drama, one character that was for the particular issue that you're advocating, one character that was opposed to it, and one character that was, quote, undecided, you have the possibility of not only shifting awareness, but potentially changing behavior. The most powerful use of that that I've experienced, unfortunately, was uh, during my time in in Serbia. Slobodan Milosevic, who was really a boring apparatchik, but he had a genius of turning narrative into a strategic weapon for creating animosity and, and fear and ultimately violence. And he precipitated four wars with made up stories and He totally understood in the same way that Adolf Hitler understood. And it's, I think, wonderful that somebody like you is involved in an academic institution that understands that stories or narratives are more than just a diversion, more than an entertainment. They are, in fact, the core of how humans make sense and meaning in the world. Yeah. And it's interesting about the issue of repetition because of both men who you just talked about and the repetition of a story. And on that Goebbels' famous line, you keep repeating it, and inevitably people start to believe it. The story, they start to believe it. There's some great examples of how a story gets twisted into something that we now believe. And years ago, I was uh, asked by Shelley Duvall to participate in a series that she was doing called Fairy Tale Theater, a very inventive series. She got some fabulous, fabulous actors whom she knew and good directors and writers to make these things. And I was uh, asked to do a version of Sleeping Beauty that had Christopher Reeves and Bernadette Peters in it, and I reflected it as a Russian tale. But when I did the research about it, the original Sleeping mm-hmm. Beauty is nothing like the one that we no. all... No, Disney did us a disfavor, big time. who was this uh, French uh, mythologist storyteller, he took the story, which had, among other things, by the way, when the prince found her asleep, in the original stories, much like the Dark Grimm story, he raped her asleep. Mm. She gave birth. And one of the children, because they were twins, sucked that little needle that stuck, that put her to sleep, and that's how she woke up. Prince felt very guilty in return. This was part of the story, not that it was the magical kiss of the prince and she revived. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's an interesting process of a story gets repeated and repeated, and then you yep. feel like, oh, that's the story. And it's also fascinating about the issue of, I think, just as I'm telling this, part of the story needs to have you go into a dark place yes. to come out of that. Yeah. Which is 
happens in all our lives. If the story was just positive and fanciful, I don't think it you know, has much of an effect. And actually, there's an interesting, and we could call this a, a random exit ramp. When I ran the Arts and Corrections program for the state of California, one of our institutions was the California Rehabilitation Center, which is out in Prison Valley near Ontario. And that institution started out as a resort that was built by, in the 30s, the mafia and Hollywood. And it was built in the form of the Alhambra Castle. And when I was at the Department of Corrections, it was a women's correctional facility that the state had taken over. And a Grotowski-trained director named Yurik Bogaevich came out and did another version of Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella based on the women's stories. Oh, wow. Fabulous. And most women in prison ended up there because of a relationship with a man. And those women, they dressed in gowns, which they were allowed to do. And he made a film that used that site, that castle, as a place for um, these women to reflect on their relationship with men who had led them down the garden path, literally. That's great. So let me veer back onto the freeway here. What I'm most interested in is given all of the different versions of the way in which your life journey have manifested, is how do you describe your work in the world? First of all, it's a wonderful and challenging question to describe what you do and what your work is. And as I thought about this, I felt that there were two aspects to it that I wanted to respond to. One is that I am an artivist, combining the idea of activist and artist. And there's no question that's who I am. And the idea of that is a reflection of where I come from. Both of my parents were extremely well informed and socially concerned on levels that was both personal in terms of the people that they dealt with, as well as in a wider stance. And my father in particular was a reform rabbi and a psychotherapist. And in the early 60s, he went down with many other clergymen to the South to deal with civil rights. That was what I grew up with. And I also grew up with an attitude about this particular culture and religion that I came from. And it was an attitude that you were to be responsible, not just for yourself, but for others around you. And in fact, even for the planet, you are a caretaker. Um, That's who you are as a human being. And there's a wonderful tale that is actually almost 3000 years old, the, the Torah, when your enemy's donkey falls over because it's too laden over with weight. It is your responsibility to go help the animal and the enemy. You grow up with this kind of idea, and you're suddenly saying, we're not that all different. We're all connected in one way. We're all related. And our responsibility is to provide for others as best we can. And that's how I grew up. So it wasn't so much I made that choice as I continued. That's one aspect. But the other aspect is it's a bit more metaphysical. I look at the work that I've done over the years. And oftentimes, I feel like the work or the opportunities chose me. Now, the fact is that when that door was open, I did step in. 
But I didn't open the door or even create the door. That was true with many of my films that were political, although initially, as my career was beginning, one of the early pieces I did was a piece called Catherine, which was essentially the uh, biography of a revolutionary, loosely based on Diana Outen, who was part of what was known as the Weather Well Underground, which was a radical movement that had finally gotten to the point saying the only way we're going to change American society, which is so oppressive and is in wars that are so destructive, like the Vietnamese War, was to actually uh, have a revolution. So we watched the evolution of this particular character. That movie got a lot of attention, and it established me to some degree because I wrote it as well as directed it. It was a television movie made for ABC. But it established me within the world of entertainment as, oh, this guy's concerned with these kind of political issues. So opportunities then came. One of them was to make a movie, which I did for HBO when it first started, called uh, Conspiracy of the Trial of the Chicago 8. Not 7, by the way, 8. Absolutely. Don't leave Bobby out. And uh, in fact, all of those people were alive when that when I made my movie and they were all part of it because I made a movie that integrated the real people with actors playing them with all the documentary footage. The court has done its best to prevent the repeated efforts to delay and obstruct this trial. As we all know, the defendant Bobby G. Seal has been guilty of conduct in the presence of the court of so grave a character as to continually disrupt the orderly administration of justice. That's a lie. I stood up and spoke on behalf of myself. You are making it very difficult for me, Mr. Seal. You are making it very difficult for me, Judge Hoffman. I find that the acts, statements, and conduct of the defendant Seal each constitute contempt of this court, deliberate, willful attack upon the administration of justice, and accordingly the defendant Seal will be committed to the custody of the Attorney General for imprisonment. Mr. Seal, you are free to address the court on the question of your punishment. How come I couldn't speak before? This is a special occasion. If you're talking about putting me in jail, I have nothing to say about that. I have something to say about the fact that I want to defend myself still. The court will be in recess. Wait a minute. I got a right. What's this cat trying to pull now? I'm leaving. I can't stay. I demand an immediate trial right now. I'm sorry I can't try two cases at the same time, sir. I have a right to go through with this trial. I want an immediate trial. You can't call it a mistrial. I'm put in jail for four years for nothing. You want to put me in jail? I want my coat. Free Bobby! was the human spirit winning over the the overwhelming power of the state. They just couldn't shut the guy up, so they chopped him, got him out. This clip from the film was the tumultuous moment in the trial when Bobby Seale was jailed and his case was severed through Judge Hoffman's contempt citation. The last voice you heard there was the real Abby Hoffman describing what went down. That movie won what was called The Cable Ace, and it was the best movie of that year. But again, it was a movie that was dealing with socialist political issues. And I, it isn't something I pursued. Someone hmm. came to me and said, would you do this? Now, it's a fascinating issue. There's a word in Yiddish, Hebrew, called Beshert, and it means like destiny. And the mm-hmm. concept, there's somebody who's your Beshert, there's some 
you know, other person out there who's your soulmate. I'm finding it very much in terms of someone saying what you were doing with uh, this movie, The Big Fix, which is also a political movie, my second feature with uh, Richard Dreyfus. My first feature right. was all about an American soldier coming back back to Vietnam with uh, Sally Field and Henry Winkler and Harrison Ford. So I'm these heroes. Right? Well, yeah. uh, I get a call saying, would you uh, do a series of 10 or half hour movies for the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, call out of nowhere. And I said, sure. And then proceeded to make these 10 movies over a year that when they dealt with things like voting rights and women's rights and dissent and the Patriot Act at the time, which was a big deal. But one of the things I said to the ACLU people, I said, look, I don't want it just to be some of the documentary with these stories of people, but I want to open up each of these 10 Mm -hmm. with a dramatic scene mm -hmm. for two minutes, three minutes. So, for example, when we were dealing with racial issues, I had a scene in, 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 the, in a little store and an African-American guy comes in and there's a guard and he's very suspicious. And we see a girl, white girl in this case, actually steal something. She gets out of the store. The African-American guy is leaving at the same time but, and, and is accused immediately, for, which he didn't do when we saw it. Point of the story was this kind of racial discrimination that we do almost immediately. But it was more effective to see it as a dramatic scene and then get into the cases, the stories, what happened to people, but always starting with this narrative. Part two, facts inform, stories transform. I'm thinking these ACLU stories were a significant departure from your future work. A different kind of client with a different definition of success. What did you learn from that? And two things I learned from it. One is I learned that facts inform, but stories transform. But the other thing I learned, which was interesting in its research, was the one thing that motivated both sides of the political yeah. system at the time, anyway, this is at least 12 years ago, I think I heard when we made these, was the issue of fairness. It transcends fairness. the divide. Yeah, yeah, and it was fascinating to hear this because it shifted the way we, we worked. And a number of years later, when I founded the Changemaking Media Center and Media Lab, it was a really interesting experiment. We got approached by the National Institute of Health to compare a drama mm. to a informational documentary about the exact same subject with the exact same facts and aimed at motivating behavior change and see which one would be more successful. This was specifically about motivating at-risk women to take pap tests in order to avoid cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. So I hired Josefina Lopez of Real Women Have Curves to, to write the dramatic piece. I did the photograph and, and the informational documentary, really good one. And then I directed what she did, I wrote, which was very funny scenes with, with a family, three generations of women in a kitchen in the early part of, the, yeah. of this piece. They're only 12 minutes long. Preparing for a quinceanera, this celebration of a 15-year-old yep. girl. Very funny. She wrote a really terrific theme, and the actors were wonderful. Here's the point. Then the sociologists and, and uh, communication experts took these two pieces, the documentary informational and the dramatic story, which was funny and dramatic, and they showed it to hundreds and hundreds of women to see if the women would be motivated to go then take the pap test. And statistically, almost 10% more 
which is incredible in terms of metrics, who saw the drama, were motivated to uh, take the test and actually did take the test. Mm -hmm. And then in all kinds of scientific journals, they began to write about this over the last number of years, that oftentimes if you want to influence people's awareness or potentially change their behavior, a good story may very well do that. And literally, we just got hired to do for what's called Vaccinate LA, two pieces, one for the Latinx community, one for the African-American community. And I got my graduate students to do this and to write it and to produce it and to wreck. And they did a great job. And it was stories. It's not go out there and take the thing or you're going to get sick or document these things. It was literally stories. Uh, One was about a a grandma's birthday party. Another one was about going to uh, two girls arguing about this in a church and then going to visit actually also a grandma and one of them not being able to go inside and hug the grandma because she's not been vaccinated. And we just got asked literally, we're starting pre-production right now to do one to encourage kids to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. But it's also going to be through a narrative story because as I said, you know, facts do inform us, but stories transform us. So I watched both of those and I think the granny one is to me, if there's an award for these things, that one is fantastic. Rhythm, the dialogue is really well done. But the thing to me that made the most impact was that the naysayers had as much, if not more, dialogue than the people who are trying to make the point. And so all those people that you're trying to talk to are being respected because their character is there. And their their brothers and sisters and relatives and everybody knows that scene. Actually, everybody is living that scene. And I, so my hat's off to you for those. First of all, I'm very impressed with these students. I supervised them, but they came up with a story and they came up with a delivery. I've been in education for a long time, and I feel like this is also part of the artivism to inspire a new. Um, filmmakers to want to tell socially relevant material that might make a difference. And it's interesting because we teach a class at uh, the School of Cinematic Arts at USC, where I'm a professor, and we teach a class called the Media for Social Change. And what's been fascinating is we would have four or five, six graduate students take it, I don't know, four or five years would go. And now we're getting yeah. 20 people, and it's just to see the shift in terms of people who now say, this is the way I want to use my skills. And that's really, I think, exciting because we live in a time where we all are in this same boat and we all need to use any skill we have to keep it afloat. So I have a a question about that and diving into this idea that you work in an educational institution. And so when you're a director on a set, You're in essence teaching, but in an educational institution where you're basically saying, I'd like to give you an experience and information that you can then take and use in your own career. What's the core of what it is you're teaching to your students who are interested in changing hearts and minds using media? I think there are a couple things. One is have a passion for the issue so that you really care deeply and it may be more personal because of your own experience or because of your awareness of other people's experience but have a passion to want to deal with it 
Uh, that means, in a way, that you can't not do it. You have to do it. And I think that's really important because the challenges of making films are that they're really difficult, whether they're five-minute films or giant films. It's not easy, and it takes enormous focus and, and concentration. So one of the issues that I, I, I want to make sure is that if you're going to do this, you have a passion for it. And then the other really has to do with learning the craft because there are ways of storytelling and methodologies in storytelling that are learnable. Mm-hmm. You can you can learn how to craft a tale, both in terms of the writing of it, as well as if you're a director of execution and the, quote, illustration of it. Could you describe how that shows up in the classroom with with your students? For example, one of the things that we emphasize, particularly um, in this kind of work where in, in artivism, is there are really two primary emotional and psychological areas that you want to address in the storytelling to get your audience excited to potentially be aware of something and maybe even take some action. One is the issue of distress. Now, what's interesting is that some psychologists have been doing some work. A guy named Zach, who's a psychologist at CIK, did some real serious brain you know, study of how people respond to certain kinds of stories. And what he was learning were these two things. If there was a distressed experience, the actual biochemistry of us, the cortisol, which is in our brains, gets activated. In other words, we're really... Now, feeling the distress of the story or the characters in it in particular. Yes, we're in it. That's yeah. right. But again, I'm emphasizing this word distress. We're, mm-hmm. we're oh my goodness, what, this is dangerous. The other one, though, is where the, we're feeling it has to do with our oxytocin level, which is also biochemistry. It has to do with caring and mm-hmm. empathy and compassion. That's also part of our brain. So if you're able to, in your story, get us to be compassionately caring about a character or characters and also feel the distress that they're under, you are going to motivate us to be not only concerned while we're watching this thing, but if it says you, we need to do something, then we're motivated to potentially do that. Right. So knowing that these two aspects of our story that you're going to tell, this aspect of distress and this aspect of care or, or, or an empathy, can I get those in this story? Can I do that? Both in terms of the, what you've written as a story and then, of course, how you make it, which means who you cast, how you shoot it, how you put it together. You know, um, David Eagleman in his book, I think it's called The Brain, The Story of You, he talks about how when that endocrine drugstore kicks into high gear, it really reinforces that shared sense of fear or exhilaration or connection. And if a story gets repeated enough and shared, it can actually become infectious, like the story of Rosa Parks or David and Goliath in a way that can modify neural circuitry over time. The other thing that I want to mention is also in these kind of stories, which is fascinating because the research is still out there undecided, is how you end your story. Mm-hmm. Do you solve the problem? Oh my goodness, it's just terrible. There's this 
disease that is happening taking over and somebody discovers the cure and it's all over and we've got a happy ending and the oxytocin comes flowing (laughs) yes that's the closed ending and you feel really good Mm -hmm. then there's also what we call the open ending where you know the crisis is up there and you don't really know how it's going to resolve so you've got something to do potentially yourself if you identified with these characters in this issue and you realize it ain't solved no Uh, i feel the distress of the issue i identified and cared about these characters in it for example in those two pieces by the way in these two short ones in the one that's the latinx piece the girl has rejected the idea. I don't need to take vaccines, and if I get the COVID, then then, then I survive. All the reasons we know, whether they're real or false, the girl at the end is confronted, what do I do? Yep. So here's that scene from the English version of that episode, uh, which was called Reasons and Rumors. In it, two granddaughters visit their tia and abuela, One has been vaccinated, the other has not. Earlier, they had been arguing about vaccination facts and vaccination rumors and what it means to get the jab. The moment of truth is when Abuela reaches to hug her unvaccinated granddaughter, and she pulls back. God bless the both of you for helping me today. Abuela! Come give me a hug. Oh. I want to more than anything, but I haven't been vaccinated. Why not? Come on, vamos a sentarnos. The choice is yours. We don't know what she's going to do. No. Which for some of us is, wow. If I were in her situation, what I do, and it might most somebody say, you know what, go get a vaccine because I do want to take care of myself and my family, my friends, and even community. So the open ending is sometimes motivating too. So these are things that we're learning, experiment, as you said, in the terms of teaching, and also because there's no one way to do this. But these things that all are tools that you can use in the process of telling your story cinematically. I'd like to just mention that in that granny piece, the thing that really got me, it was an open ending. And the real focus of the entire story is granny. And granny is the one that says, cool it. I want this to be a fun party. And everybody stops eating each other up around the table and they go with granny. But at the end of the day, the meta message is this isn't just about you. This is about the people that we care the most about who actually also got her vaccine because she's the smartest one in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we have a listen to what granny had to say in that scene? That's what's wrong with you young folks. Y'all don't know nothing. Mm-hmm. Y'all get a little cold and y'all want to shut down the country. No, no. Now, mama has lived through all the outbreaks. And look at her. She ain't came out with none of them. Look, it doesn't matter. Melanie, don't worry. I'm bringing her down to the clinic tomorrow. You can't take her to get something that she doesn't even understand. She's old. She's here. I'm going to just bring her some of my foot rubs and I'll knock out all that negative intent. The only negative energy around here is you. Oh, that's And I'm going to say this one good time. Don't bring that mess around my mom. Okay, I'm bad. Baby, I'm fine. Get your cousin. I'm fine. I can just 
talk to Granny myself. Oh, You did? Of course I did. Do you really think I would have everyone at my house and not be vaccinated? Should I was first in line. Now, stop all this arguing. Come on, let's eat some candy. Yes, Shout out to the writer, director, Mary Lenay. It was interesting, it, as with some of these things, it was collaborative. The group yeah. that she worked yeah. with, Miller and a number of other people, they all said, how about this and this, which is yeah. also part of a process of making something good in cinema, is to realize you're going to get good ideas from lots of people. Listen. So one of the biggest issues that I deal with in my teaching is we live in a culture that um, emphasizes the entertainment side of all this. And in doing so, actually what I would call is the trivialization of culture, which is that if it's entertaining, it's actually not a core element of what we're up to here. It's a side deal. It's an hors d'oeuvre. It's an extra. And because I really cut my teeth inside the California Department of Corrections using art with incarcerated men and women... They taught me very early on that I was working with something powerful and also had an immense level of responsibility attached to its practice and that you could do as much harm as you could good wielding this power. And of course, this is the same power that the pre-art artist was wielding around the ritual fire 30,000 years ago in prehistory. And so my, my question to you is that as y you are teaching the craft of your work and giving people access to tools and skills that actually exponentially increase the power, is there a place where you deal with the moral and ethical dimensions of the work? Because guess what, folks? This isn't a piece of candy. It's a piece of uranium. It, it's very powerful. Do you, how do you deal with that? I want to say collectively, we've all taken this on. For example, in the graduate school, the School of Cinematic Arts, when you first get in, one of the classes you take is a class in ethics, and it's the ethics of storytelling, it's the ethics of cinema. That means the ethics of what stories you're telling. That means the ethics of how you deal with other people in the process of storytelling. That mm -hmm. means taking responsibility. I want to deal with well, the issue of the word entertainment yeah. because the word itself from the Latin really means to hold attention. Y yes. So if you think about that, if you have a message, then you really want people to understand that global warming is absolutely real. I'm going to have to hold your attention in terms of however I communicate this. And if I bore you by not entertaining you, yes. by railing you or lecturing you or overfacting you or whatever it is, you're not going to be motivated no. because I didn't hold your attention. I didn't entertain you. And if you think about some of the best comics of the last 30 years who have been extremely political because they're really good storytellers and they do entertain yeah. us. 
they hold our attention and in the process potentially uh, change our awareness. Then the other thing that, that, that I, I have to, and I've been thinking about this a lot more recent, is the issue of escapism. Hmm. And on the one side, on the one side for me, when I didn't become a filmmaker in order to purely provide entertaining escapism, does that mean I don't like a you know a good comedy that I'm laughing at that doesn't seem to have any political nature? No, of course I do, and I really do get, particularly under crisis times which we're living in, to actually be quote entertained is in terms of escaping the crisis is something that I understand and I accept because I think some of those storytellers around the fire were getting the people who were afraid of the animals that might attack them at night, their minds were driven to another space by the story that got told. Obviously, you can tell a story that has a real motivation for social and progressive change and tell it very entertainingly and then get your audience to be involved. You think about, I'm just thinking, the one that comes to mind right away is Chernobyl from about two years ago. This was an amazing piece of work that is about the dangers of nuclear energy, the dangers of corruption within a a profit-oriented, in this case, even Russia, profit-oriented institutions, the bureaucracies of it, the lack in trust in science, Right. This, that, this is all, their, their messages are full. And that famous line, if you want to say, send a message, send a telegram. Listen, every movie has a message, even when you think it doesn't have a message. Absolutely. Just, uh, yep. It has a point of view, which is one of the reasons why we want our students to understand, even if they're going to quote, I want to make escapist horror movies. That's what I want to do. <laughs> okay. Be responsible for what you're doing. It, it really is an issue that we are, as teachers of the next generations of filmmakers, are taking very seriously. That's why I say we teach uh, an ethics class as you get in here, so you get conscious. Because the power of media is exponentially increasing as we move forward. So the human beings that are wielding the cameras and deciding on whose voice gets heard and how the story gets told, whether they want to or not, they're getting an outsized opportunity to make an impact. This is where we close the first part of our conversation. In our next episode, we segue from the question of ethics to the matter of trust in social impact art making and in the community writ large, particularly these days. We also talk about these issues as they relate to Jeremy's film Crown Heights, which deals with the violence and hatred that erupted between the black and the Orthodox Jewish Hasidic communities in Brooklyn in 1991. So, thanks to all of you for tuning in, and to Jeremy and the USC Changemaking Media Lab for sharing some of those soundtracks. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our soundscape and theme are the work of the incomparable Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Neve. Our effects come from freesound.org. And our inspiration rises up from the mysterious OOP 235. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, please join our community by subscribing and sharing what we're up to with your community. Until next episode, which is part two of Jeremy's story, please stay safe, stay well, and spread the good word. Bye.